Hello, friends. It is a holiday season, a Chag, if you will, a Chag, which means that to honor God, we should not be swearing. We should use only the most elevated language. On the other hand, this is a holiday season that celebrates dividing a Red Sea and then drowning lots of people behind us, then wandering the desert for a very long time. So, my friends, there may be swearing on this show. This has been your obscenity warning. One of his Haredi rabbis suggested the only way to make your mouth kosher for Passover is to uh, to gargle with uh, boiling water. You go first. <laughs> Hello, matzah-eating people of the world. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am joined, as ever, by senior writer Liel Libowitz. Chag samech v'kasher l'chol bet Yisrael. All of that. And Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Die, die, you know. <laughs> die, die, you know. Uh, this is our Passover episode. This is, uh, is it our second annual 30? It's our first Passover episode. I don't it's know actually know. our 57th, 78th. It's our 57th, 78th episode uh, for Pesach. Um, happy Passover to all of you. It's a special episode today in all sorts of ways. We have a lot of terrific special parts, moving parts to this episode. But before we get to those, Liel, how is this Passover? different from all other Passovers. Like a good Jew, I'll, I'll answer a question with a question. Stephanie, last year, celebrating the Seder, what, what did you use for your Haggadah? Probably like the, the old, what's the yellow one? It's not the Maxwell House. Let's just not even give it a name. The yellow the one. The yellow one is very yellowed what? over the years. And, and, and what was the yellow one like? Was it satisfactory? Look, I, there's nothing, it's just fine. It's what it is, right? We do it every year and no one really thinks about it. It's, it's bleh. Did the yellow Haggadah have contributions to modern day plagues by Simon Doonan and Jonathan Adler? It did not. Mark, did the yellow Haggadah, which you have used as well. We'll just like, call it the yellow Haggadah. We all have. Yeah. Uh, did it have uh, provocative discussion questions that, if asked, could make your Seder table sound a lot like an episode of your favorite Jewish podcast? In fact, it couldn't. No, it, it had nothing of the kind. Nothing of the kind. I'm embarrassed to say it had nothing of the kind. What What can we do about that this year, Liel? I think this year we did something about what it. What do we do about it? We, we have created yep. our very own unorthodox Haggadah. Uh, where is it available, Stephanie? On the internet. How much does it cost, Mark? Nothing. This is unbelievable. This Every is Jew's true, favorite price. Listen, this is a true Passover miracle. Forget the sea. Splitting the sea, that was... Chump small, change. Chump change. Chump small change. potatoes. Small bore. Now we have the Haggadah you've all been waiting so for. So people want this Haggadah, go to tabletmag.com slash unorthodox Haggadah. It'll ask for your email and then magic. It'll appear in your inbox. And for those of you who are unsure about the transliteration of the word, that's unorthodox Haggadah. H-A-G-G-A-D-A. Hard, hard word to spell. Let's say that. It not is. as Not as hard as Hanukkah. Hanukkah and Haggadah. Hag- it's also a hard word to say. Is it Haggadah? Haggadah. And ours... Uh, uh, even though it is an, un- an unorthodox Haggadah, contains, uh, I would say, probably 85% uh, of the original text. Everything uh, up until the meal and about 65% of stuff after the meal. It's actually pretty orthodox for an unorthodox yeah, Haggadah. It's in, in Hebrew, English, and transliterated Hebrew. It's pretty legit. Um, Stephanie Butnick, how is this Passover different from all other Passovers heretofore for you? Well, now I understand why there are two satyrs. One for each set of in-laws. <laughs> like, well, it's amazing. There's two holidays for every, like, two days for every Jewish holiday. If and it's only because of Ilu this reason. Just to, like, keep the peace. It's amazing. It, how come we haven't figured out that we need two Thanksgivings? That's the real issue, right? Like, how do you do Thanksgiving well, That's why interfaith couples, I think, work so well. Because it's like, you get Christmas, that's I right. get Hanukkah, I get, exactly. I get Passover. That is like, the number one argument for yeah, interfaith. It's, it's, it's why divorced couples yeah. work so well. No, too soon. And so you'll sign yourself up. You can actually sign friends up if you know if you know their email address. Is that true? We can go rogue and we can send them junk mail. I mean, it's not junk mail because it's it's a Haggadah. Like it's right. so it's basically going to show up in their inbox and it's going to be like, here's a link to the unorthodox Haggadah. You can actually tell your friends you're going to send it to them. It's I mean, actually a wonderfully passive aggressive way to get friends who are a little off the derrick, like not as Jewy as you want them to be, or like maybe your children have fallen away. If a Haggadah arrives magically in their inbox, right. it's sort of like God is saying, celebrate Passover. Or to let year. Aunt Ruth know that you're, you know, you really care. That you really you're care. really practicing this year. And, you know, Shay Oppenheimer, of course, <laughs> Passover this year is the last Passover where there will be um, only four children. Have they so. heard the whole thing about like putting the baby in the in the basket and yeah, I would not p- tell floating him down about, the Nile about River? About the part of sending <laughs> kids in the Nile. Yeah, there's the, there's only firstborn like... boys. <laughs> only lastborn boys they are will go sl- down the river. Let's just say they're slowly coming around to the whole idea. They're still in negotiations for a puppy. They're what gonna... can I say? Moses Oppenheimer is a strong Ooh. name. You know what's interesting is while we've gotten many recommendations for a moil, nobody has suggested a name. 
Moses. It's, it's like people are stepping up, stepping back for the name. They they don't want to. It's too close. It's too real to suggest a name. But everyone wants us to. Allow use me to oil. be the first. Moses, Aaron, Kirk, Douglas, Oppenheimer. I like Matza Oppenheimer. Matza Oppenheimer. Matza Oppenheimer. And Mark, now let me ask you. Wait. Before you do, the nifty thing is, I just have to say, my great-great-grandfather was, in fact, Moses Oppenheimer. So Now, Mark, let me ask you, how is this Passover episode different from all other episodes? This Passover episode is nothing like any episode we've ever done. It's an episode in five parts. We're going to kick off with some Ask Unorthodox. You guys, the J. Crew, sent us questions. We answer them just in time for the first Seder tomorrow night. We answer your questions. Also, an interview with Adam Mansbach, who, along with Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel, has written the Haggadah called For This We Left Egypt. Wait, is that what it's called? It's called mm-hmm. for, th- for This We Left Egypt, which was published last year. You're pronouncing year. it. Going, it's like, for This We Left Egypt. For This We Left Egypt. Uh, critics on Amazon have said it's the second best Haggadah to come out in the last couple of years after, well, you know. We're also going to have a wonderful live story told by Jay Mia at a storytelling event I did uh, a few months back in Brooklyn. This is a story told by the son of Bangladeshi American immigrants about how a job at the Straits Matzah factory on the Lower East Side helped their family arrive at the American dream. Also, an interview with Persian-American Jew Roya Hakakian, who explains to us the Persian-Jewish tradition of scallion whipping at Seders. I have to say, Sephardim have so much more fun at Seders than oh, we do. In, at Seders? In life. In, in life, life, but they do I mean, the kidney yo. They, like, they have a much better Passover, I think, than like, we do. You know, let's just not we stress the Ashkenazis. Just, just enjoy life. Ashkenazis. I mean, the, the Persian Jews had some other things, you know, to contend with. It's they, true. they get better Seders, but, you know, Ayatollah. So there's and, that. And, uh, and Haman. Oh, that's right. And also an interview with our producer, Josh Cross's mother-in-law, who is a Moroccan Jew, explaining to us the tradition of Mamuna, a holiday that I had never heard of until this year, but involves lots of fun and lots oh, so of- So good. Lots of- Lots de- of pastries. Devouring for pastries. The course, involves just having fun. Just having fun. And uh, it's going to get us another appearance from a cross child from Stella. So this is the unorthodoxist of unorthodox Pesach. We are thrilled that you are joining us for this this episode. Um, Listen to it as you clean the kitchen, make the brisket. Or as you're stranded on the Jersey Turnpike or <laughs> the I-5. This this episode is for all of you who are trying in vain to get to your Seder on time. So we asked for your questions about Passover and you sent them. Oh, I need some advice from you. Oh, yeah. Um, so here we go. Here's someone who writes, I'd like to remain anonymous in my question, as you'll see within. I'm newly pregnant and have not even told my family yet. Passover is a drinking holiday, obviously, and my family loves to drink and notices when the women aren't drinking. How do I make it through the Seder without drawing attention to myself, since I'll still be at only eight weeks? Thanks, J. Crew. So I've actually, I asked my sister, um, Francesca, who had a baby about nine months ago, and she, uh, she did talk about this being a very awkward time where you want to be inconspicuous um, because it's just too early to have those conversations. So she gave me a few nuggets of advice. One is to sit next to your partner and have a glass of wine and have your wine glasses be next to each other and have them drink sort of out of both. (laughs) Drink twice as much. Yeah. And and sort of switch. Like there's there's sort of ways to sort of uh, to get around that. She says inconspicuously. I I will come to your Passover Seder and I will drink for you. Um, yeah, which I appreciate. It's yeah. like sympathy drinking. It is. Um, and to carry a wine glass around with you so oh. that you are visibly appearing to drink. I am drinking for two. <laughs> I'm drinking for two. And then you could sort of go to the kitchen every now and then and like pour some out quickly. Um, and that, that does sound like a lot of work. But I think when you're not holding a drink, it's it's it draws attention to you. I will say that I didn't – I did think I had a feeling – a breakfast that she may be pregnant because she was holding a bagel with just cream cheese on it and no locks. And I was just like, that bagel looks so oh weird. Oh, Where fish, is the locks? The and she thing. said, oh, I forgot it. And then walked away. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she forgot the locks. And it was only later when I put it two and two together. I was like, oh. So basically being pregnant and Passover entails that you be like a character in like a 90s sitcom. Be like, <laughs> no, I need to go to the kitchen. It's all a big misunderstanding. Like that's that's the <laughs> One friend I knew uh, had a trick where they basically had white wine watered down. They just basically like dashed off to the kitchen quickly and watered down some white wine and then just nursed that glass all night. And yes, you will then imbibe some molecules of alcohol, but so, so little that really, you know, if you if you want a foolproof method and you're willing to imbibe, you know, a tenth of an ounce of alcohol, that that's that's what you have. I think actually you do grape juice instead of wine. 
as, as a red wine juice club. Is a wine. But the other thing I want to say, and and this is obviously I don't think we've helped you as much as we could. We have no foolproof method. Um, is that the expectation that everyone's a drinker is really really oppressive? I think it's. Um, I mean, Sid was never a drinker, and she will talk about how one of the great pleasures of getting engaged and then married was no more dates where you had to pretend that you would have a glass of wine just so people wouldn't think you were a weird teetotaler. And you know what? Like lots and lots of people don't drink or they don't drink every time they're at something festive. Like there are lots of people who drink sometimes, but then you know what? On a given day, they're not feeling it the way that I like Coca-Cola, but I don't like Coca-Cola all the time. And Jews used to drink less, by the way. Like the, the thing now where like, you know, okay, Passover is a drinky occasion, but the thing now where like big Jewish families get drunk together, first of all, I find that extremely goyish. Second, I just want to say in society at large, it's okay if some people aren't drinkers. And the weird thing where everyone thinks it's okay to inspect their non-drinking, pregnancy or not, is just really oppressive and really stupid. Let people consume what they want to consume. That's a fine worldview, but it's Passover and there are four glasses of wine that is part of the Seder. Like, but you know what? Lots of Jews don't drink. First of all, very few Jews I know drink all four glasses of wine. But I'm just saying that there's the there's an the understanding that this question makes sense in this context because it's like it everyone does. has all these glasses of wine and, and they're there and what do I do? Agreed. I'm just defending her against all the I, people. I disagree I that difference. drinking is goyet. Like I don't. That's I right. Don't, it's it's our getting birthright. wasted with your family unless you're the Leibowitzes. No, like, what, again, it's a it's family in the also it's also it's weird to get wasted with your parents just the way it's weird to smoke pot with your parents. This is a whole set set of things we can talk about. Look, in another families show. that drink but, together stay together if only no, because they don't they, because they, they can't get up. <laughs> They throw ashtrays at each other. No, they're, they're on the, the couch. Court. They're passed out. They're anyway, our anonymous friend, I uh, hope we've given you a couple tips. I, if, you div- if you come up with any good ones, let us know, and we'll definitely read them on the air. Oh, comrades, fill no glass for me To drown my soul in liquid flame For if I drank, the toast should be to blighted fortune, health, and fame. Okay, so there's more than one new Haggadah out this season. Of course, there's the Unorthodox Haggadah, which you can find at tabletmag.com slash Unorthodox Haggadah. A free download, if I didn't mention that already. But in addition to the Unorthodox Haggadah, there's also the very funny Haggadah. For this, we left Egypt, a Passover Haggadah for Jews and those who love them. Written by Dave Barry, Alan Zweibel, and Adam Mansbach, who sat down with our very own Liel Leibowitz to talk about the art and craft of writing yet another Haggadah. So before I ask you about the Haggadah, what, what was Passover like as a kid for you? You're clearly, you know, in, in, in the holiday spirit. Definitely in the holiday spirit. Um, you know, I come from a long, long line of very secular Jews. So I don't have a lot of family Passover memories. We occasionally went to my maternal grandparents' house, um, but doing it was new for them. Like they were doing it for the benefit of the grandkids. So there wasn't like this hallowed tradition or like this family Haggadah. They were kind of like rolling their eyes and stumbling through it. The The main story in my family about Passover is from when my grandmother was a little kid. And back then her grandparents were religious. They were the last religious Jews on that side of my family ever. Right. You know, it was like an eight hour Seder. And somebody remarked that my grandmother, who was a little kid at the time, was behaving incredibly well. She was quiet. She seemed attentive. And then they got up to go to the bathroom and realized that my grandmother and her father were playing chess on a low table next to the <laughs> dining table. <laughs> so, you know, that's the history of it. Um, I occasionally went to Seder's at my buddy Adam Lazarus's house when I was a kid. And that was my first exposure to like a real Seder where people took it seriously. His father ran a really tight, really fun Seder. It's the first time I had matzo ball soup that wasn't from a fucking jar. <laughs> and I remember that his father, Jeff, he would give a quarter to anybody who asked a really good question. So you were encouraged to interrupt and ask things. And there was this lovely spirit of inquiry. And I'm going to interrupt you right now and tell you that that is a fantastic idea. Just give your children cash for participation. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I really, I remember clearly like a, a decent question got a, a dime, but a really insightful one got a quarter. So I do remember sitting there trying to think of 
good questions to ask. And I did get a couple of quarters. So how did the three of you uh, get together? Because it, it seems funny for, for someone who, who kind of uh, was tangentially uh, involved in, in this tradition or enjoyed it kind of as a, as a, as a, as a participant, uh, as a reluctant participant. How did you, how did you get together with, with David Allen? And how did you get to write this book? You know, I do a lot of volunteer work in old age homes. And I happened to be reading to the elderly in the home where Dave and Alan's children live. Um, <laughs> the truth is that I had written two books already with Alan. We did a couple of um, kids' books about a kid who starts trading letters through time with Benjamin Franklin. Alan and my kids' book had the same publisher as a kids' book of Dave's. Um, and also, you know, I, I've been a fan of Dave since I was like 10 years old. I used to read his columns religiously. If you read my own high school humor column, it reads like a very bad knockoff of a Dave Barry <laughs> column. My father was a, a newspaper man. He worked at the Boston Globe for many years. And even before Dave's column was syndicated to the Globe, my father would grab it off of the wire and bring it home, print it out for us to read. So, you know, working with Dave was like, I, I still kind of can't believe I get to work with Dave. It's kind of incredible. And of course, meeting him was incredibly disappointing, um, you know, after all of that. But it, I guess I was attending a Seder a, a couple of years ago. And, you know, I was I was like making all these jokes. I was cracking myself up. My girlfriend and I were like rolling. Everybody else was looking at us like, who invited this asshole to the Seder? And, you know, I think at that moment I was like, there's a, I should do a book. There's a book here. So um, we, we, we picked a Haggadah. We picked kind of like a very classic standard you know, 1980s Haggadah of the type that I grew up with and just sort of made a list and started splitting it up and riffing off of each other's stuff. And and a surprising amount of, of research and learning went into a book filled with, you know, cheap dick jokes. You could totally um, tell. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm somebody who, for the most part, as I said, didn't grow up with a lot of religion. You know, my parents did not belong to a synagogue. They sent me to like the so you think you might be Jewish Sunday school and grill, you know, <laughs> which I, which I got kicked out of even. Um, and I've revisited, or I guess visited a lot of the aspects of Judaism as an adult. You know, I wrote a novel about 10 years ago now called the end of the Jews. And I, I didn't set out to write a book that was about Judaism. I set out to book, uh, write a book about my grandparents' generation and, a, you know, like sort of the interplay between that generation and my own. Um, and as I said, my grandparents were not particularly religious, but their Judaism was nonetheless a defining factor of their lives in many ways that were beyond their control. So I began to sort of study and learn and gain a real appreciation for, you know, the, the aspects of Judaism that I connect with, a, a lot of the cultural stuff, the spirit of inquiry, the idea of constantly arguing and 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 you know steel sharpening steel and two jews three opinions and the talmud basically just being one long endless argument that only ends when they run out of pages <laughs> um you know so I, I i go back to these stories and i find them very interesting um and also full of holes obviously you know like some of the discussion questions that i wrote in this Haggadah, which are funny like i would actually like answers to like you know, the angel of death, okay, you got to put lamb's blood on the door so the angel of death knows which houses to avoid. Does this mean that the Jews, the slaves, lived in houses indistinguishable from and presumably next door to the people enslaving them? You know what I mean? <laughs> That's totally perplexing to me, as is the fact that when the Jews fled, you know, with no time to spare, taking with them this unleavened bread that could be used as food and also building material. Um, they seem to have run directly to the largest body of water they could find. Like what type of escape plan is that? <laughs> I got to tell you, if, if Mr. Lazarus is listening, I think he owes you <laughs> like $300 for these great yeah, questions I'm right sure, now. Man. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're very well known uh, around uh, some parts, especially to those of us who have children as the author of, uh, I believe the, uh, the third best-selling book, Book of all time after you know the Bible, Mein Kampf, and the Communist Manifesto. Um, <laughs> go the fuck to sleep. So, um, being a, a children's book author and, and a father, you read the Sagada now from from the other side, not as a kid, but you know, but as a parent. 
What 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 does it strike you uh, as a story designed in large part to get kids to participate? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think in many ways it is a masterful story. Um, of course, the reason that that Passover I think has endured as a major holiday, <clears throat> unlike some which have fallen by the wayside, is the strength of the narrative. Um, it is sort of an evergreen. It is sort of a, an eternal. Um, eternally relevant story about freedom and about slavery and the notion of as long as people are oppressed, nobody is free. It, it, it does its job. It gives you the teaching tools that you need, I think, as a parent. Amen. On, on that serious note, Adam, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Liel Leibowitz in conversation with Adam Mansbach. For This We Left Egypt is available wherever fine books are ordered over the internet. All right, the mailbox was littered with questions from people who said, what is the deal with kidney oat? This, by the way, was a word I hadn't even heard until my late 20s, but there are always people who want to know if we're keeping Pesach, if we're trying not to eat unleavened grains or bread, can we eat kidney oat? Um, Liel, could you give us a little explainer on what the deal is, what's kidney oat, who can eat it, who should eat it? What is this thing? Kitniot is a beautiful Hebrew word, the translation for which is a beautiful English word, legumes. Uh, basically, maize, rice, peas, lentils, beans, things of that nature. Uh, and here's the deal with them, uh, because uh, Ashkenazi Jews are, you know, a, a, a grim and dour bunch, uh, fond of restrictions and uh, other joyless occasions. Uh, we decided that uh, apart from leavened bread, which is cool, uh, we should probably also ban some other things in Passover. And we came up with not eating kidney oat. Now, how we came up with this is, is well, it's complicated. Uh, most of us trace back that minhag, that tradition, uh, sometime to, to the you know medieval times. Uh, why did we do it? All kinds of explanations. Some people believe it's because uh, when you ground lentils into uh, flour, uh, it looked too similar to actual flour and therefore was confusing. Some people believe it's because you kept those grains in the same grains or nearby the grains where you kept the chametz, so you didn't want to mix them. Uh, my favorite explanation comes from Maimonides, uh, which says uh, something along the lines of, well, you can't eat lentils because it says specifically, and you should be joyous in your holidays. And lentils are not a joyous food. No. <laughs> I mean, they were traditionally eaten in times of mourning, so this is not as ridiculous as it may sound. Uh, but the point is that uh, a lot of Ashkenazi Jews don't eat uh, legumes. Now, of you course, mean don't eat, are not permitted on Passover to eat legumes? Are not permitted on Passover to eat legumes. Now, but here's the great thing. You know, what is permitted means it actually really comes down to your own personal tradition. Because uh, in Israel, on you know, miraculously around every March or April, all Ashkenazi Jews all of a sudden, you know, discover some <laughs> Sephardi ancestry. Well, they do their DNA. Big, oh, but oh. of course we're permitted some rice and some beans. Here's a question that came to us from our Facebook group. The Facebook friend writes, I'm an only child. My parents live in town and we always have holidays with them. Sometimes it's lots of people, sometimes just us. My mom loves to cook and enjoys making all the traditional things that her parents and grandparents made for the holidays. We are vegetarians, and my mom always accommodates us by making everything parve, except the meat, which she makes for everyone else. My mom is very ill. She has stage four lung cancer and has outlived every prediction. She's amazing and strong, but she does not have the stamina she once had. Here's the challenge. She still wants to host both nights of Pesach, but the prep is way too much for her. She cooks and bakes for 10 days leading up to the holiday and needs at least a week afterwards to recover. She gets stressed out and upset with her own new limitations. It really takes a huge toll. 
When anyone offers to help, she says she has it all under control. This stubborn streak is why she's still around three years after a terminal diagnosis. I've offered to host, but she doesn't want that, in part because she won't be able to have brisket and chicken at my house. When I offered to host one of the nights, she said she'll just make a double batch of everything and have enough for the second night, so it's silly for me to host. When we talk about downsizing to just a few dishes, she says she will make it small, but she hasn't succeeded yet. Talking about it with her gets us nowhere. So, do I just let her wear herself out preparing for satyrs, or do I somehow insist that we host at least one night? Is she holding on to this as a little piece of normal in a very out-of-control time? And if so, wouldn't taking it away be cruel? But if it's legitimately harmful to her health, shouldn't I put my foot down? This is both a Passover question and a much larger question of passing the baton to the next generation, ready or not. So, Stephanie, what do you say? Well, we got some um, really nice advice from our producer, Josh Cross, who basically said, let her host both satyrs. If she wants to do that, she should. And and to, to take that away from her isn't necessarily right. But have her be sort of like the managing the manager of the process and to say, like, you tell us exactly what to do here. We're all going to show up. We're going to get there, you know, the day before we're going to sort of come in. You're going to tell us what to do. We're going to cook. Just divvy up the tasks and, and basically make it so that she is, in fact, completely running the show and it is her show, but that you guys are all there to help. I love that advice. I love that advice, too. And I would say, first of all, to be perfectly frank, I mean, you say it's bad for her health. She's outlived a terminal diagnosis by three years. If hosting these satyrs takes a week off of her life but gives her enormous joy in, in some universe where we could calculate this, I think I, I think you'd agree it's worth it. Um, but the other thing I want to say is, as a as someone with a vegetarian household, I put myself in these shoes because um, I'm lucky to have living parents and living in-laws, all four of whom are meat eaters. What would happen if uh, my parents or my in-laws wanted to do a, uh, a holiday that involved meat? Um, we wanted to host it for them to save them the wear and tear in a time of terminal illness. W- w- if we were in exactly this situation, what would we do? And we, we do not cook meat in our house. Um, that said, I think we would. I, I think, and I, you know, you have to draw your own lines here and I totally respect whatever you do. But I think that if, um, if someone of the older generation who was dying wanted to bring meat into our house and that was what made it all doable, um, you might want to think about whether it, that's an exception you can make since you asked. Hello, J. Crew. I know what you've all been wondering. You've been wondering, what can you do for us on this Passover? How can you help us help you? And the answer is you can rate us in iTunes. I'm going to read you the best review we've gotten all week, like the best review in the past six or seven days. And then the question is, could you go on and top that? Could you rate us if you feel it, if you feel it in your heart and say something as cool as what this person said? So let me just read this for you. This person who goes by the internet handle of Star Xena wrote, Unorthodox is my favorite podcast because I'm more than just a listener. I feel that I'm part of a community. In addition to tuning into every new episode, I'm a member of the Facebook group. I get the newsletter and I've had a letter featured on the air. I love the hosts and I love the guests. If you're looking for a podcast that features nuanced cultural discussions, Jewish baby name suggestions, and lots of Gal Gadot, Unorthodox is for you. Boom. See, that's what I'm talking about. Just if you feel it, say that kind of thing because your ratings lift us up in the iTunes algorithm and then more people find us. So it's actually like you're helping the Jewish people um, do that. If you want even more Unorthodox, sign up for the newsletter. Write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or just search for the Unorthodox podcast on Facebook and then join our group. In the last seven days, we've had posts about all sorts of things and we've even helped people find satyrs and people have posted pictures of themselves with their babies in the Unorthodox onesie. Speaking of those onesies, if you want swag, if you want to wear unorthodox, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers to put on yourself and wrap around your 
coffee. For live shows, hey, I'm going to be at Greenwich Reform Synagogue on May 18th. We've got some lister parties in the works. If you want to book me live or my co-host live or the whole show live or do a listener party via Skype, write to our producer, Josh Cross, at jkross at tabletmag.com and download our Haggadah, a brand new unorthodox Haggadah edited by Leo Leibowitz, Stephanie Butnick, and Mark Oppenheimer, whoever he is, tabletmag.com slash unorthodox Haggadah. It's a free downloadable PDF. You didn't want to spend any money on Haggadah. You've never liked the Haggadahs you've had before. You want to do Haggadah? Tabletmag.com slash unorthodox Haggadah. Enjoy a Passover Seder on us. A couple months ago, I performed at a really fun event at a synagogue in Brooklyn organized by the fabulous Ellie Reiter, who's a friend of the show. It was a Muslim-Jewish storytelling evening, and I was one of the Jewish storytellers, and then Ellie had pulled together a few other Jewish storytellers and some Muslim-American storytellers. And one of them was this guy, Jay Mia, that's M-I-A-H, who told this beautiful story about a Bangladeshi-American immigrant family and what a particular matzah-making Jewish family meant to them. Growing up, one of the major themes in my childhood was my dad's employment status, or rather, his lack thereof. You see, my dad, this poor, illiterate farmer from this tiny country called Bangladesh, sold everything he had, whatever few belongings he owned, to buy a couple of plane tickets for his wife and, at the time, four young kids. And he hopped on a plane, and about 22 hours later, found himself in South Brooklyn, New York. Six months after he'd arrived, I was born, and then about a year later, my kid brother had come. And soon, this small family of ours had swelled to six. So here he was in this new country, in this new land, didn't know its customs or its culture, couldn't speak a lick of English, but a family he needed to provide for. So he took whatever work he could find. And most of that work came in Indian restaurants. But when I was six or seven or so, my dad lost his job. And it took him a really long time to find another one. If you ask me, I'd probably tell you something cute like, the universe has a strange way of giving you your first big break. And for my dad, he got a very strange break when he walked into this old Jewish factory that some of you might have heard of, right in the the heart of the Lower East Side called Streitz. And he walked into that factory, and I hardly think he had a resume with him, but he convinced that factory owner to hire him. And just like that, within one day, he had a union job, health care, benefits, and for the first time in his life, an actual shot at realizing his American dream. I don't think I'd ever seen my mom cry any harder. It was such a tremendous moment for our family. And that was an especially important moment for me because a couple of weeks after my dad got hired, the guy who hired my dad, this factory owner, a man named Jack Streit, the grandson of this legendary matzah maker named Aaron, took my my father, my kid brother and I to our local dollar store. And I'd been in the store so many times and we'd bought everything from beans to batteries and they had this huge aisle of toys. And Jack points to the aisle of toys, looks at my kid brother and I and says, have at it boys. Immediately, I wanted to run to the back of the aisle where they kept these Huffy bikes pinned to the rack. And I wanted to bring down one of those and take it home with me. But I, but I remember I could look back and I could see my dad with this raised eyebrow, like this classic Indian look that said, boy, don't you even think about that. <laughs> so, you know, I got the next best thing, which was this pinball machine. And I took home that pinball machine, and that's all I did for the next month. The neighbors hated it. My mom hated it. It was big, it was loud, it was super obnoxious. She literally threatened to throw this thing out in the trash almost every time I used it. And like most toys in my childhood, it did end up in the trash. But then many, many years later, I'd come home one day. This was during my college breaks. And my dad was super upset. And my father's this South Asian man who's super stoic and rarely shows emotion. But here he was on the verge of tears because Jack had died. And I remember... Just, I, I felt this, this searing poignancy, like a sadness that just cut right through me because I never got a chance to thank Jack and I never got a chance to ask him why he hired my dad and why he bought us toys that day. You see, I didn't really know Jack. That day at the toy store was the first and last time that I'd ever met the man. I don't know what kind of father he was to his kids. I don't even know what the rest of his employees thought about him. But I thought he was such a great human being 
And I want to peer inside of his humanity and ask him, why did he do those things for us? I mean, that man has meant so much to my family. He gave me a love for matzah. And trust me, matzah is a hard thing to like. It, it really is. It really is. And then if it wasn't for Jack, I don't think I would have gone to college. My dad would not have been able to buy me those textbooks that one semester had 30 some odd dollars in my bank account. And I think because of him, my mom invented this new category of cooking, Jewish curry fusion. <laughs> we owe that man such an enormous debt, one that does not escape me. And this one week after Thanksgiving, I'm reminded how much matzah, of all things, could change the very fortunes of this tiny immigrant family. And I hope that one day I could do something for someone the way Jack did for us. And maybe, just maybe, buy some kid their pinball machine. Thank you. That was New York-based storyteller Jay Mia with his tale of how the Strites matzo-making family welcomed his father to the United States of America. A listener writes, anonymously again, been married 43 and 10 twelfths years. We were always a small and isolated family. My family and his are gone. How do I handle my first Passover without my husband? He passed away yesterday, suddenly. For that matter, handling the death economically is going to be rough. No, we are not all rich. So, first of all, anonymous listener, let us tell you truly, sincerely, how deeply sorry we are for you. It's never easy to lose a loved one, and it's um, much less so to do it when that loved one was, you know, a person who was so central in, in your life. Um, but let us actually offer a, a little bit of, of what we hope would be uplifting advice because here's the thing about Passover. Yes, you know, we all focus about this great big celebration of family and it is a pleasure and a privilege to be able to do it, you know, uh, surrounded by so much light and love and and people who mean the world to you. But there's another comfort there uh in that story which which I think could be could be meaningful even if you're sitting, you know, at home alone and it's it's the pleasure and the comfort of knowing that you are a part of something larger, that you are reading a story that your ancestors have been reading for thousands of years, uh, that you know people will be reading, um, hopefully, thousands of years from now, and that even though you are overwhelmed uh, with, with grief and, and sorrow and thinking that you know uh, so much of, of human life is so uh, transient and, and finite, uh, there are things that remain, and there are things of which we are all part, and there are, there are great big journeys in which we all play a role, uh, as, as small and insignificant as it may seem to us, uh, but not meaningless and never hopeless. And I think there is some solace in that. I'll just add that I, too, was incredibly moved by the letter, and you have my condolences. Um, I agree with Liel that there's some solace in being part of a you know, trans-historical community. I also want to say two things you might do. One is, um, if you do end up alone, uh, you should have no shame about being alone. If you're okay with it, and I'm not saying you are, because obviously you've just lost your husband, but eating alone even on a holiday is something I've done. I've done it on New Year's Eves. Um, I've had Thanksgivings where I wasn't with family. And um, even the most popular, happy, celebrated people in the world are sometimes on a Christmas Eve or Passover or New Year's Eve where they get takeout and watch a movie. And that is something that um, is a source of strength. And you shouldn't feel bad about that if that's what it comes to. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that um, if you do want a meal and don't have anyone who's inviting you to a Seder, reach out to some rabbis if you're in an area that has them. Uh, Reform, conservative, orthodox, certainly Chabad. Uh, if they're doing their job, they will go to the ends of the earth to try to find you a Seder to go to. And for a good rabbi, this is actually uh, an honor and, and they know it's a mitzvah and they take joy in the mitzvah of finding a meal for you. It's not something that you should ever uh, hesitate to do. It's actually a part of their 
their job that they really, really love. So I would encourage you to to be intrepid enough um, to to reach out and try to find a meal. And sometimes those are the finest meals where you've been pulled into a table where you don't know anyone and uh, and you meet some new friends. So I would just encourage you to 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 try that if you if you have it within you. That's right. We got a bunch of letters asking us for just tips for a good Seder. This recording that we got from listener Anne Levine asked us about how to host a Seder for, for newbies, inviting folks who don't really know the holiday. Cape Cod, and we've got quite a Pesach conundrum. We don't, there aren't too many Jews here. We really want to have a Seder, and we were thinking that we would invite a dozen people that we spend a lot of time with to a Seder, and that we would... You know, make all the food, do the whole thing, and put together a Haggadah that would be, you know, kind of basic, not a lot of rabbinical, Talmudic complications for them. And I'm wondering if that's a good idea. Do you think they'll like it? Will they be bored? Are we crazy? Are they going <laughs> to leave and laugh at us? Um, well, they, I mean... They do that anyway, but uh, we don't know. We don't know what to do. We want to have people over. We want to have it be very entertaining for all of us. And we'd like a reason to make a pot of chicken soup with matzo balls. Please help us. What should we do? Uh, so here are my two tips. The first thing is, and it sounds like uh, like our, our correspondent has this under control, bring in some goyim, bring in some Gentiles. A Seder is not a Seder, I think, if it's only Jews. I think you want some people who are experiencing this holiday for the first time in part because they will see it with new eyes and they will realize how great it is. They'll say, wait a minute, you guys have a holiday where you get together and drink a lot and tell stories from the Bible and argue about it and then drink some more. And I mean, just the silliness of it, the craziness of it, the intellectualness of it will really impress a lot of people who have never been exposed to it. Number one uh, party tip, invite some non-Jews. <laughs> invite some non-Jews. Um, and the second thing I'm going to say is do your best to make it um, – diverse in terms of the ages of the people there. I think it's really, really fun if you have some little kids and some old people and everything in between or as much in between as you can. That just is a nice dynamic. I just think there's there's something depressing about the Seder that's all like 28-year-old hipsters or all young families sending the little kids in the other room to, you know, to watch uh, watch dino tales or ninja or whatever. I just think age diversity is, or is, is your friend. What, what about you guys? Uh, Liel, what do you have for tips for them? Well, my first tip would be to uh, download the beautiful unorthodox Haggadah, uh, which would make your life much easier uh, because it has everything you need. And it just brings all the joy uh, and spirit of this here podcast to your own living room. Um, you know, I actually went to you for advice a couple years back uh, because I felt inadequate at, at my job. I um, I run, I used to run seders, uh, kind of like Stalin ran, you know, cabinet meetings, which means that you know everyone. <laughs> Someone had, was dead by the end. <laughs> yeah, everyone had to drink, and you'd be executed if you didn't do <laughs> what I told you to do. And you know what? Surprise! It just didn't feel like fun to a lot of people. Uh, and so I would say questions are really great. You know, th there are four built into the text. They're kind of weird and wacky and archaic, but um, but I think that taking the time to stop and like raise general questions uh, for discussion and our Haggadah is actually pretty good at that. For example, like what are, what are some of your modern day plagues? You know, what are, what are the 10 things that kind of haunt you? Uh, just to let people, you know, talk and think a little bit and then, uh, at the same time, um, ask people to do homework. I know this sounds silly and ridiculous, but I think if you send a note in advance, and this is something we always do, first of all, letting them know what the menu is, getting them really excited. It's going to be a great festive night. But then also asking people to bring, you know, one or two or three special little readings that they like, maybe a poem, maybe just a couple lines from a book. So that they, you know, that they feel that they could share something so we could talk about it, listen to it. It makes a world of a difference. I also think the beauty of Passover is how accessible it is to everyone, right? It doesn't require you to go to synagogue necessarily. It doesn't require you to sit through services in entirely in another language. They're actually, that's 
the, the point is to sort of be together over this meal. And I think that actually to think about it as such a good opportunity to bring people in and to to just get them involved in the story. I mean, the funny thing is, like, the story is really crazy. And that's why it's funny, like, to have non-Jews there, which, you know, I've had before. Like, it's, it's really weird to hear for the first time. Um, but I also think making it relevant to each of the the people who are there and like it doesn't necessarily mean a debate about politics or what it what it means to be free i mean there's just there's just so much of the of the story that's applicable today and i think just bringing it to the present is really really helpful I totally agree. And it just occurred to me, another great thing about having non-Jews there is they don't suffer from Jewbarrassment, right? They don't they don't have that awkwardness of like, why are we doing this old ritual? And what if I don't know the Hebrew? Like, they know that they don't know it. And so they just experience it as this fun anthropological journey, which makes them, you know, a huge asset to the holiday. Unless they're a firstborn son, in which case it gets a little awkward. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, guys. You, you may want to go... Uh, just skip over page 75. Fre- freshen up your glass for this next bit. Here is my favorite question of this holiday season. Dear Unorthodox, as a Christian, I have observed and maybe even participated in some cultural appropriation. I want your take on it. Christians who celebrate Passover, please discuss. I have seen where a big ballroom was rented out and upwards of a hundred people will come to celebrate Passover with a Christian flair. I've seen smaller celebrations. Families will invite others over and have a traditional Passover meal and celebration. Is this offensive? Here's my true confession. Within the last couple of years, I've been to several bar and bat mitzvah celebrations. I find them to be very meaningful. I love the spiritual significance. I've been known to take pictures of some of the readings so I can remember them. I asked one of our Jewish friends if he would be offended if I put up a mezuzah. He shrugged and said, no, there isn't anything that you don't believe. But still, I hesitate. What is your take on this cultural appropriation? Thank you, a devoted listener. So... First, they came for the Jews. Yeah. Then they came for our Passover. First, <laughs> they came they for came, the brisket. Then and if the brisket was the gone, so they had some of the chicken. <laughs> what do you guys think? This is a dicey one. I think that Christian Seder, I mean, the idea is like, oh, Jesus, his last meal was a Seder. And I think that's the, sort of the logic, but it doesn't quite track for me because the Last Supper was not a Seder as we know it. Like, there's sort of a lot, the Seder as we know it today. Right, right. Do you think the Seder and the Bible, like, do you think the Last Supper looked like a Seder does today? Pretty much, yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, even so, I mean, the question is, it's not their tradition anymore. And I was recently invited on a podcast to talk about something I had not heard about. A Christian podcast had me on to talk about Purim parties for Gentiles. Apparently, a lot of evangelical churches are having Purim carnivals. So, I don't know. I mean, my take on all of this basically boils down to... um, You know, it's all context, right? I generally like cultural appropriation. I think we're all free to borrow anything. But basically, like, do you love the Jews or do you in your heart of hearts want to convert them and turn them all into Christians? So if you love Jews as Jews, that's a good start. Also, I think you have to invite some Jews because then you'll make sure to get it right. Like that's my rule. If if, like if the you script have a seder, supervisors, yeah. If you have a seder, you want you want some script supervisors. You want some cultural sensitivity readers. If you're having a seder where you're mis, it's like some of those messianic Jewish uh, churches or synagogues where you go on their website and all the Hebrew is wrong and all the pronunciations are wrong and the transliterations are wrong. It's like if you're going to do it, I think you owe it. It's not that hard to find Jews. Like we're on the internet. Even if we don't live near you, you can find us on the web. We will rent our services out. I mean, Stephanie and Liel and I will absolutely. Absolutely, for a reasonable hourly fee, consult on your uh, Passover or Purim celebration. Um, so I don't know. I mean, as for the bar and bat mitzvahs, the bar and bat mitzvahs have bigger problems than Christians wanting to do it. I mean, I'm always sort of amused when non-Jews want to take on Jewish practices. Like the idea that a non-Jewish person <laughs> wants a mezuzah is so funny to me because I'm like, I have so many complicated feelings about like sort of overt Jewishness. Um, so it's it's sort of entertaining to me. But like... I don't know. I guess I guess my question is like are you doing it to learn? I don't know what the purpose is. If like if you're doing it to learn about the Passover story or to I don't know. Guys, I feel I feel I feel like the two of you really are are being really bad Jews right now cuz l- let's do what we do Isn't best. Isn't that this podcast title? Bad yes, Jews. L- let's do what we do best <laughs> and 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 barter here, right? Let's okay, be Jews. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh so so here's the deal. Um you can have one of ours if you could have one of yours. Ooh, what do we get? We're what not going to do the tree because oh, it's we're too trading. much. But, but okay. of course we are. I mean, come on now. Get, get some entrepreneurial spirit. Um, the Art of the Deal. Isn't that the book we read on Passover? Uh, <laughs> so here's the deal. Uh, and this is very close. Uh, you have Easter. Easter has Bunny. 
Uh, you could have the Seder if we get the rabbit. I think that's fair. Or you know what? The Paschal the, rabbit. The Paschal rabbit. Or at the and very everyone least, loves Easter too. At the very least, we could just set like a twofer. You can't have one Jewish holiday. You want a fun one. You have to take a non-fun. You one. get like the ninth of Av. That's exactly right. You want you want you want Passover. You have to do Tzom Gedalia. Like one fast day, one great happy meal. That's just right. <laughs> I, I will sign on to that. Yeah, you're welcome, Goyim. Now, if scallion whipping doesn't mean anything to you, well, you're not alone. Uh, It didn't mean a lot to me either. I had always heard vague notions that this was one of the Seder traditions that didn't actually uh, have any purchase in the Ashkenazi world that I am very much part of, but that in certain parts of the world was an indispensable and memorable part of the Seder. We talked to Persian-American Jewish writer and my friend Roya Hakekian, who explained to us her own family's experience with the scallion whipping tradition. I was born and raised in Tehran, Iran, in a Jewish family, and um, I emigrated to the United States uh, in 1985. I've always tried to get a sense of the family tree, and um, no matter how far back uh, I try to go in order to uh, chase our roots, um, we seem to have always been in Iran. Uh, on both sides of of the family tree, my maternal and my paternal. Um, so as far as I know, we, we have been there. And we might have been there since the fall of the first temple. Who knows? I guess uh, the other thing uh, that, that uh, makes my particular case interesting is that my father was one of the founders and uh, one of the few Jewish educators um, who ran a Hebrew day school in Tehran, uh, which I attended for a few years, but then it was far away from our home. And I attended a different Hebrew day school uh, for as long as there were Hebrew day schools in my time. Um, So that was, that made uh, our celebrations and uh, our traditions slightly more serious than the rest, I suppose. I have not had many Ashkenazi seders, but I've had a few of them. And uh, there were things that um, my father used to do, uh, which I have uh, not found on an Ashkenazi seder. You know, the moment where um, the plagues, we're um, recounting the plagues and the Ashkenazi dip their pinky in in a glass of uh, red wine and then dab the uh, tablecloth. Um, we didn't have that. And what we had instead, we literally um, held the four corners of a gigantic sheet over the entire Seder, like, you know, we do at the chuppah or something. And that uh, enabled us to uh, keep the plagues from... Uh, reaching uh, whatever that was on on the table. So we wouldn't expose our beautiful feast to all these bad ideas. I want the Ashkenazim to know that the Persian haroset recipe is the best there is. And it's the sort of thing you can eat throughout the year um, it's it's a softer version of the best um, snack bar you could ever have. And we make gobs and gobs of it and we keep it around for months. It Roughly, it had lots of pistachios and various sorts of nuts and dates and hazelnuts and, and grape juice and wine and pomegranate juice and pomegranate seeds. So... It was a it was a really heavy, thick 
concoction um, that was also delicious. And we ate it, um, not just at the Seder, but throughout um, the eight days. And it was so good that if we could keep it um, in the refrigerator um, for a long time, we certainly did. Uh, to borrow a term from you, the Safar normative is to uh, hit each other during Dayenu with scallions. However, the Hakakian version, which is my very own, is uh, that scallions aren't good enough. I have replaced them with serious leeks because every year I realize that after one, um, you know, thrashing they would fall apart and uh, you know and there was no uh, real game to be played so i have i go out buying uh, piles and piles of leeks every year and uh, i hand them out um, to everybody and we with each dayenu we hit each other um and uh, i think the roots of this was probably um, in the notion that kids should have fun. And this was a way to get everybody off the table, um, running after each other and having a little bit of um, a, you know, sort of a game um, at the table. Because as you know, it's a very long evening and it can get tiresome. So the Dayenu portion gives you a chance to all uh, rise to your feet and and do a little bit of uh, running around the table. I don't know whether there were uh, any more philosophical reasons to this other than, you know, making it sort of joyous. Of course, the, all, all the rooms where um, satyrs happen um, are usually cramped. So, um, so this isn't you know, uh, playground running, but but yeah, you chase each other, and and you know somebody tries to avoid a thrashing, and another person is uh, really looking to hit the other. So um, yes, there it's a it's a sort of a game, and and um, I think part of it, if if we were to really stretch the imagination, it would be that um, we're saying um, it's enough, it's been painful enough. And and that's it, you know. No more, um, no more pain, no more suffering. Uh, that's it for us. That's enough for us. So, um, you know, if if anybody was trying to actually create a tradition uh, to to reflect the actual words of the Haggadah, then then the thrashing is supposed to be painful. And something that to which one would want to say, Dayenu, it's enough. And the worst injury I've ever seen is a sore butt. And uh, that's not so bad for all the fun we get to have. You have my approval as long as you reference us. Because we have been borrowing from you and, and trying to assimilate among you without squeaking a peep. Uh, so I hope... Um, I, I give you my blessing to appropriate all you want uh, as long as we know that we are planting our Sephardi flag at your Seder. Another question on cultural appropriation. Dear Unorthodox, I've organized a big party to celebrate Mimuna, the traditional Moroccan Jewish holiday yeah. for the night Pesach finishes. The thing is, I'm a pasty, pale Polish boy, and all the Jewish attendees will also be Ashkenaz with no familial connection to the Maghreb. Is there an issue of cultural misappropriation here? Picturing a bunch of Ashkenaz Jews in Galabias ululating at each other is starting to get me worried. What do you think? Mutter or Asur? Sincerely, Shmoikla Shmoikelson. <laughs> So well, we, first of all, Schmoichler, what a name you have. That's I'm thinking of that for the Oppenheimer boy. Schmoichler, Schmoichler said Oppenheimer. But to your very serious question, so is it cultural appropriation if Ashkenazi Jews celebrate uh, Persian or Sephardi or other kinds of Jewish holidays? And we'll say specifically, Mamuna is this amazing Moroccan festival that happens at the end of Passover. And it's basically when you can eat bread again. And so they've taken it to the next level and it's just like filled with pastries. And um, one of them is mafleta, which is like sort of like crepe-like I, it's amazing. Slathered. 
and honey and butter. And like a Nutella almost, like it's spread. It's the best thing in the world. And so basically the question is, can a bunch of Ashkenazi Jews... I think, well, actually, I'm, I'm curious to hear what Sephardi Jews think. But I think, like, with any type of cultural appropriation like this, intra-cultural appropriation, it's it's great if you're doing it to learn. Like, it's... it's And you're giving credit to the idea that this is a different community within your own community's practice. I mean, as long as you're not doing it for... Like, as, right, if, but here's if, an, if there's a good intention, I don't know. I don't see the problem. But here's an easy way to solve this problem. Uh, it's it's an actual festival celebrated by actual people. And they're really, really happy to invite people because part of the, you know, kind of festivities of the festival is to have strangers show up and become new friends. So just make friends with I, people I, I who are not like you. And is, then they'll invite you to their thing. And it, it'll be cool. It's weird to be like, we want to do this Moroccan thing so badly. Since we don't know anyone, since there's no other option than just doing it ourselves. This is the one day of the year we're kind of curious about you. Like, okay, well, here's the deal. Next year, make some friends. And then the year after that, you will receive an invitation. How do they handle this in Israel where there are Moroccan Jews easier to find than they are in, uh, you know, New Haven or or you well, know, Toledo? There, there you just go to your friend's uh, party. And once again, you lament the fact that your uh, culinary heritage is uh, <laughs> calved, uh, you know, calf foot in jelly. And there is is uh, pancakes with honey and butter. Uh, and you celebrate and you have a good time and generally reflect on the wonderful diversity. Have you done this? Life. Have you done Mamuna? Like every year. Wow. And I yeah. had never heard of Mamuna until I got this letter, which shows the vat of ignorance in which I've been submerged yeah. all my you life. You sing, you, you, you know, the music's amazing, the food's amazing, everyone's together. It's just such a happy, it's like the, almost like the anti-Seder. Not that Seders aren't festive, but like, there's no judgment, there's no script, it's just a celebration of togetherness. And bread and honey. Um, it's, it's, carbo, it's, it's the carbo-loading, <laughs> it's the festival of the carb-loading gods. That's exactly right. But listen, enough of our blather. It so happens that our producer, Josh Cross, has a Moroccan Jewish mother-in-law with whom he's done Mamuna. So we set him to find out uh, the right answer on this question of cultural appropriation. Because I've married into a half-Sephardi family, I've gotten to experience a bunch of new traditions. Luckily, I was able to ask my mother-in-law, Elsie Apfelbaum, to explain Mamuna to us. At age 18, the then Elsie Pinto moved from Morocco to Paris and brought her traditions with her, which is where I met them. I connected with her from her home in Tel Aviv so she could tell me all about it. Her granddaughter, Stella Cross, helped us out with the translation. Eight days after Passover, we do a little holiday called Mamuna. It's a tradition specific to Sephardic Jews from Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. For eight days, we haven't eaten chametz, and after those eight days, we reintroduce the chametz into the house. In fact, memuna means joy in Arabic, and it signifies bringing back everything that was forbidden into the house. There are two Moroccos, the Arab Morocco and the Spanish Morocco. I can only tell you the traditions about the Spanish Morocco. First, we went to the synagogue to finish the Passover holiday. Just after the prayers, because the Arabs know it's a holiday for the Jews, they keep the bakeries open and the grocery stores as well. So the Jews can buy everything necessary for the holiday. After sundown, we went to the bakery to buy bread and flour to follow all of the traditions. It's not a holiday for hot plates of food, but all types of cakes on the table. It's a meal, but it's a sweet meal. It's not a normal meal, full of salty things. So we put all the cakes and fruits on the table. We also serve dried fruits, dates, nuts, and grapes. Everything that is sweet. We set a very, very pretty table and tablecloth. We also put something on the door of the house, and this is my most beautiful memory of the holiday. On the door of the house, we put an herb, a branch that we buy especially for this day. I don't know the name in French or English, but I know it in Arabic. It's called Atarsha. It smells very good. There's also a very specific tradition where we put a fish on the table, but raw. Salmon or bass. 
C'est pour juste pour la décoration. It's just for decoration, and in the mouth of the fish, we put a bracelet. It's a little barbaric, but it's a sign of fertility and luck. When the guests arrived, it was absolutely necessary there was a fish on the table with a bracelet in its mouth. It's not for eating, just for decoration. There are other things we do. We made flan because there's a lot of milk and sugar in it. The meal has to be very sugary. We made coupe-jac, which is a cup with all sorts of fruits cut in little pieces and syrup made from orange blossoms. Mint tea also. We make crepes also, but not normal crepes. But we make them on charcoal. It's an Arab crepe and it's harder than normal ones. It's called mofleta. Delicious. We put very hot butter and honey on it. It crunches in the mouth. In Israel, however, it's very bizarre because I don't know many Sephardim besides me. The Ashkenazi don't do the holiday, and therefore on the night of Mamuna, the people would rather have pizza or barbecue. But that's really nice also. I will conclude the interview by saying Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Well, so bye-bye. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a message. Like, for example, if you thought that the advice we gave was terrible or if somehow we got Mamuna wrong or if you have a story about Stride's Matzah Factory or if you just want to tell us how to do this show better next year, call us and leave a message, 914-570-4869. For merchandise, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Joshua Cross and Shira with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our theme music is by the band Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Extra thanks this week to Jay Mia for his story about Stride's Matzah Factory, Roya Hakakian for explaining scallion whipping to us, Elsie Apfelbaum and her translator Stella Cross for telling us about Mamuna. And then, of course, we want to thank Argo Studios, where we record and where we are happy that not all of the Gentiles got swallowed up by the Red Sea. <laughs>